Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. Last week we talked about the turning point of the book of Nehemiah being in chapter 7. It went from the time where they were doing the physical work to Uh, what we're going to talk about today until the end of the series, which is when God begins to do the heart work, the spiritual work inside the lives of people. And in the middle there, uh, it was talking about counting what counts, that God took account of who was there, um, where they were, uh, the leaders, uh, who were the worshipers, and how did they worship, and uh, and he really counted the identity of the people uh, who would be there and would take part in uh, this next stage of the journey. Because up until that time, the walls of Jerusalem had been burnt down. The people were just a remnant. They were just a fraction of who God had intended them to be. Uh, The whole place was in reproach, meaning that it was vulnerable on every side. And so the people that were living there, some of them were a part of the people of God. Some of them had moved in and had lived around there, and they weren't welcome uh, to be there anymore. They had oppressed the people and wouldn't let them continue building. Well, now, as we reach this point in the story, the walls are up, the people are together, and just as we saw last week, Nehemiah went through a book, a book that uh, laid out all the genealogies and said, if you are a part of the family of God, then you're welcome to be a part of what he's going to do next here in this city. And if not, then you can't be a part of some of the things that God has for us. And so the identity of the people mattered so much in Nehemiah's day. And our identity matters today as well. And so we talked about identity a lot last, uh, last week. And towards the end of the message, we talked about how someone determines their own worth. And many people, you find your worth from your work. You find your worth from what you do. What you say is, what I do equals who I am. And whenever you live in this works-based life, and especially if you say you have faith and you believe in God, if your whole faith in God is a works-based faith, then you can find yourself in some really difficult places. And uh, let me describe it to you like this. Many people, they define their worth uh, in this uh, this old problem that they would normally do. They would say, I'm gonna take all the good things that I have done, and I'm going to subtract out all the bad things that I've done. And whatever I'm left with is my worth. And so some, you would say, when I took, take all my good and I put it on one side of a scale and I take all of my bad and I put it on the other, I'm in the negative. You find yourself there, and so what you would say is, I feel worthless. I feel that I don't have any worth because of my past, because of the decisions that I've made, because of the wrong choices that I've done. Has anyone else ever done that in your life? that you try to take all the good and the bad and try to figure out uh, if I just kind of put it all together, where do I end up? I see people that do this all the time. I see how this mentality can even find its way into the church and into people who would say you're a follower of Jesus, but you're still trying to earn your way to him. You're still trying to earn his love. Well, here's what I want you to know today, that if you are in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if you belong to him, if you've turned to him with your life, Your worth is no longer based upon who you are, what you have done, what your past looks like. Your worth is now based upon who Jesus is and what he has done for you and what he did a long time ago. Meaning that your worth is no longer found in your sins and in your shame and in your past. You have a brand new identity. You're a new creation. And I think there's about five people over here who say amen to that, that are excited. I'm going to pray for the rest of you. Uh, Someone needs to get excited that they belong to Jesus and that he saved them and that he's made them new. That's exciting. That's something that we could have never done on our own. That's the identity that he has given us. 
sons and daughters of God. So our identity is no longer found in what we have done, but it's now what Jesus has done, meaning that we are people that live with a new identity. And we are called to live in this world with that new identity. In Nehemiah's day, they were a people that were living in slavery. They were living in exile. They were living apart from God. But you know what? They were coming back to God. And when they came back to him, he wanted them to have a new identity. And at the foundation of that identity was the work of God, was the provision of God. It was about him, not about them. And for us as believers, the very foundation of who we are is not about what we have done, but the work that God has done in our lives through Jesus. Now, Jesus teaches us a lot. If you'll take a moment, if you'll keep your finger there and hold a place there in Nehemiah chapter 8, but if you want to go to John chapter 17 with me, Jesus does a short teaching about this as he's praying for his followers. In John chapter 17, verse 14, he's praying with his disciples. He is uh, praying to the Father on their behalf. And so what we learn is, is some incredible things right in the midst of this intimate prayer that Jesus is having on behalf of those who would follow him. And church, guess what? If we continue down through the ages, this prayer was not just for them. It's the prayer of our Lord for you as well. And as he's praying, this is what matters most to his heart. And he talks about the identity of those who would follow him. He talks about who we are called to be and what we are called to do with our lives. And here's what he says. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world as I am of the world, as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So what Jesus is saying here is he's talking about what he has given his disciples, what he has given his followers. And he said, I'm going to leave you. I'm sending the spirits going to come, but also I've given you my word. And now that you have the word, you can carry that. And that becomes a part of who you are, that you now are a people of my word. You carry on what I have taught you. You walk in obedience to my commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to obey what I have called you to, to live like. And that came through the word, the word that now we have today. One of the key things that are meant to be at the core of our identity is we are called to be a people of the word. You know what we used to be before? Before we came to Jesus, we are a people of the world. We are a people that belong to the world. We are a people who gave in to our own selfish desires and we have lives that are marked by sin and wrong choices and, and really decisions that have continually put us outside of a relationship with God. If you go back a few thousand years and you look at Nehemiah's day, the people that were there, they were supposed to be God's people, but you know what they did? They took, in, took part in a series of events and actions and attitudes and behaviors that continually put them outside of their relationship with God. They were a people belonging to God, but they were a people of the world. They wanted to worship all the other gods. They wanted to take part in all the things God told them not to take part in. God wasn't trying to be withholding. He was trying to protect them from themselves, from their own sinful desires. But as they gave in, they continually compromised their lives to the point where they no longer had a relationship with God and therefore they were sent into exile. They became slaves because they were living like slaves and they went off into exile. But
but God wanted to give them a new and true identity. And he wanted to make them his people again. And we can see that if they were going to be his people again, they were not going to be a people of the world. They were going to be a people of the word. They were going to stand on God's word. So what we need to get into our hearts today is this, that followers of Jesus, Christians, are called to be in the world, but of the word. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be in the world. And you say, well, no, we're not called to be in the world. Yes, you are called to be in the world. Because guess what? Every single day you wake up and you put on your clothes and you get ready and you head out the door. And you know where you go? You go into the world. Some of you wish that when Jesus called you to follow him, he did not call you into the world anymore. But for you to do that, you need to drill down into the earth's crust and live in a a hole in the ground somewhere and uh, just pray every single day of your life, every moment, and never talk to anyone, and then maybe you could be saved from being in the world. Every other one of us, we are called to be in the world in some way. And Jesus, in fact, he says this. He said this, I don't pray that you take them out of the world because I have a purpose for them here but instead keep them from the evil one because that's where he is. He's roaming around all throughout what's happening in the world and he's looking for someone that he may devour. But he said, keep them from the evil one. And he said, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So we are called, church, to be in the world. We are called to be outside of these doors, engaging in the culture, engaging with the people that are there, but we are not called to become them. Of them. So get it. So we are not called to be of the world. That's who we used to be. We are called to be in the world. We are now called to be of the word. Jesus said, I gave you my word. I gave it to you. That you would be sanctified. That you be cleansed. That you be changed by that truth. And then you would go out as salt and light. As my witnesses. As my representatives in this world. That's what God's desire is for us. For us to have the identity he's called us to have. As the people of God. We need to be a people of the word. A people of the word. And that's what we learn here. As we go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. To take a look at what's happening at this point in the story. We can see what happened and how it models exactly what Jesus has called us to be, but you can see this model being used in Nehemiah's day as well as the Lord is calling the people back to him, that they would become a people identified being a people of the word. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. If you like to take notes in your Bible, that's a key phrase that you need to grab a hold of today. Those who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men, women, and those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Well, I'm excited today to tell you that we're going to model what God's word says. And I'm going to share with you today from right now until six hours from now. Uh, And we're just going to have a good time. And I want you to be standing the whole time. That's what happened in their day. Six hours they read from the scriptures and the people were attentive and all the people that were there were those who could understand what was being said. And so it was all women, all, all children, all um, men, everyone who had the ability, the capacity to be able to understand what was being taught and the people were attentive to what they were hearing. 
This was the first time. For them, maybe they were just making up for lost time because it had been a very, very, very long time since they had ever taken part in something like this. Part of them being in exile, part of them being outside of where God wanted them to be in their lives is they weren't in relationship with him like they had once been. And therefore, they weren't able to gather together and just hear the, the, the book of the law, the, the word of God being taught to them. And so this was something special as they all came together, as all the physical work had taken place, God saying, now I'm ready to work in the hearts of my people. And so Ezra brought them together and they began to read God's word to them. And the first thing that we need to understand if we are going to have an identity that is in the word as the people of the word, the first thing you need is you need to understand it. You need understanding. You need to read the word to seek understanding about what it means and what it says. You notice that key phrase, that's a phrase that's used six times just in this chapter. Those who understood, who had the ability to understand, they, did, they taught them so that they could understand. See, the, the very reciting of the word of God and it being shared in that way, that was nice for some, but it did not have power unless they could grasp what it was being said to them. If not, it was just a practice in speaking out words. The same is true that if I measured my uh, spiritual life by how many Bibles I owned, I could bring you and say, hey, I have 50 Bibles. You know how spiritual I am? Uh, you know, you have people that own hundreds of Bibles maybe. The question is, have you read it? Do you understand what it means? Have you applied it to your lives? Oh, no, no, I didn't do that. I just bought a bunch of them. I think that makes me fine with God. No, no, that's not supporting the kingdom. That's not what God's looking for. It's not about how many Bibles you have. Is it in you? Is it in your heart? Do you know God's word? Do you understand who he is as you read his word? That's what's being measured here. And so for it simply to be spoken out was one thing. It was about it being understood by the people that mattered most. See, in our, in our day today, whenever we first started as a congregation, as Evangel Church, we were a German congregation. And therefore, the sermons were in German. How many of you know if we were still a German congregation today, speaking German, how many of you would not be here? Why? Why? The word of God's being taught proudly because you don't have the capacity to understand what's being said. The same is true. I was talking to Miss Gail that's here interpreting, and she said the same would be true. We have a deaf congregation that meets here with us. And Hi. <laughs> the same would be true if I was speaking and speaking and speaking and Miss Gail wasn't up here interpreting. They would be sitting in, but they wouldn't have the capacity to be able to grasp what was being said. See, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing for it to be shared. It's another thing for it to be understood and then applied into the life of an individual. Information is great, but what we're looking for is transformation. And that's why the people were called together and said, and everyone who could understand, you know why? If they could understand, then they could apply it to their lives. And if they could apply it to their lives, then God could change their hearts. And so information, we've talked about this before, plus application equals transformation. So he's looking for people that can understand the word of God. That it, Before it can really go into your heart and your life and transform it, it means that you need to have actually grasped what it means and the truths of God's word. And so that's what we need to understand and grasp today is really what it means to be people of the word that seek to understand God through it. Do you see, God's word is normally seen as many different things. And you could say that God's word um, has a lot of metaphors or analogies that could be used to describe its relationship with us as we engage in it. The first thing we need to know about God's word is it's a, it's, it's a revelation of who God is to us. 
God has chosen through his word to reveal himself to us. He's chosen to allow us to understand and know his heart by what he has revealed to us. It has been compiled over thousands of years and yet it tells one story, the story of God, his great love for you, his saving power in your life. It's a story about God's heart, about his love, about his attributes. And so for us to know God, we need to know and understand him through his word. It's what he's given us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We can learn about who God is. It's a picture of who God is so that we can see, understand, and apply that to our lives today. And so today, if you have a casual relationship with God, you may feel that you own the Bible. You have it. It's sitting on your table every single day. How much of that is moving from the pages of Scripture into the depths of your heart to the place where you are learning and understanding about what matters most to God and you are seeking to walk in that? Are you seeking to know God through his word, to understand what his word means and what it's calling you to in this life? If not, then you may feel like you're having a shallow relationship with God. Some of you, you're looking to see God become more real and alive in your life, and yet you neglect spending any time in his word outside of a Sunday morning. Don't be surprised if that's what your life feels like. And know that if you seek to know him through his word, he will make himself known to you. He will reveal himself to you. Jesus tells a story, a parable in the Gospels about a farmer that goes out and he scatters seed on the ground. And he scatters it in four different types of soil. And the farmer is representative of the Lord in the parable. The seed is representative of the word of God, the good news of who he is. So the word of God's being scattered... The soils represent the different kinds of people, the different kinds of hearts that receive that word. And the idea is that depending, the the farmer is the same every time, the seed is the same every time. What changes and what has a direct impact on what's being produced? The condition of the soil, the condition of what's going on. Because some of it would not receive it at all, would not take it in at all. And therefore, it went away. Others would take it in in a very shallow way. And any time the storms and difficulties and the trials came, and when things started to get hot, it withered away. Others had too many stones, too many other things that were there, crowding it out so it couldn't grow. But the heart, the life that received the word, allowed it to go down deep and to take root, yielded a harvest of 30, 60, 90-fold, an incredible harvest beyond what they could have ever imagined. You know what? That's a principle of what happens when the word of God reaches into the depths of your heart It has its transformative power then. But today, if you're looking at it as information only and you're not having a life that looks to truly understand God through his word, then you're not in a place that God desires for you to be when it comes to your relationship with him if you're not spending that time nurturing your spiritual growth through the word. So Nehemiah has called the people together. Ezra is there. He's reading it to them. Look what it says in verse 5 and 6. It says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people For he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. So Nehemiah, or Ezra, I'm sorry, gets up here. We see in Nehemiah chapter 8. And he opens up the book. And it's more like a scroll that's going to be read from. And as he looks at it and he begins to praise the Lord for what is being read and shared. The people are worshiping God. They're lifting their voices. They're hearing it. One of the main reasons why he held up the book in front of them is he wanted them to know that this was not just the opinions of some man. 
This wasn't just an eloquent teaching. This was the word of God that was being shared with them. And that was their response to God's word and what God was sharing with them at this time. Then something beautiful happens in verse 7, is that there were appointed men who went out throughout the crowds of all the families that are gathered there. And they went one by one throughout the crowds and they explained the word to them so that they could understand it. So they could truly understand what was being said. It said they explained a lot of the people while they remained in their place. And verse 8 then says, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they could understand and it could be understood what they were reading. So they were gaining understanding through this time. It wasn't just about it being read. It was about their hearts being receptive to understand what God's word meant to them in that day. See, if we don't have that understanding, it's a dangerous thing. Whenever God is looking in Isaiah chapter 5 and he's speaking about what these people were living with, here's what he says. He's warning of a day that's coming to the people of God if they don't open their eyes. And here's what it says in Isaiah 5, verse 13. It says, my people will go into exile for what? Their lack of understanding. My people will go into exile for their lack of understanding. Do you know what that means? What they had just been through. The reason the walls ever needed to be built in the first place. The reason why the city was in reproach was not just because of the sins of the people, was not just because a powerful army had come, it's because of their lack of understanding about who God was. And because of that lack of understanding, they found themselves in exile, in slavery, apart from God. Today, if you don't look to grow in your understanding of who the Lord is, if you don't look to engage with him in that way and seek to know him and find him and be found in him, you are in a risky place. He said, my people, uh, Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They are destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. So today, seeking to know God, he will be revealed to you. We need to grow as a people of the word in our understanding of God through his word. The second thing we see happens as we continue to move forward, as you understand God in his word, it has an effect on you. It has an impact inside of your life. As it goes beneath the surface, beneath the surface level, and if you truly understand what God wants to speak and communicate through his word, it changes you. Things start to move inside of your heart and life. Look what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. So imagine with me that this is the first time in a very long time that they had come together. And as they came together, the word of God was spoken to them. And whenever the word of God was spoken to them, it was like a picture of who God is and what mattered to his heart and, who, and, and, and all these things that they had not been thinking about, had not been reflecting on, had not been understanding for over a generation. Imagine with me, they had been gone for 70 years and now these people are back. And as they're back, they're seeing God's word, they're understanding it again for the first time in a long time. But the word has another effect of what it becomes as you read the word and as you seek to understand God through his word. It becomes a mirror. And when the word of God becomes a mirror, it creates a reflection. And that reflection is something that overwhelmed the people. 
You know why? Because what you, what you see here is you don't just see who God is and understand his heart and his love and all these things. You see who he's called us to be and who he's called you to be. And as you look in that mirror and you'll hold it against your life, it can overwhelm you because you can see, Lord, I've fallen short of who you've called me to be. My life doesn't reflect what's reflected in your word. And, and as that happens, it can overwhelm your heart because you know that you're not living in a way that honors God, that, that God is pleased with. And as the people are seeing that, it's like them seeing their reflection for the first time in a long time. Imagine with me today that you, you took a, a fast away from mirrors for the next week that you will not see your reflection for the next seven days. Do you know how you would look at the end of those seven days? You probably wouldn't be too happy about how you look after those seven days. For those of you who have to put on makeup and do things like that, you're going to be, you're going to really, really wonder. After the first day, after the second, before you know it, you look, I just used the word crazy in first service. We'll stay with that. You're going to look crazy. Now imagine with me this that if the last time you were able to look in a mirror was when you were five years old and you couldn't look in that mirror again until you were 75 years old, what would you look What would your response be? That the last time, the last image you had of yourself was as a five-year-old child and then you look again, you're 75 years old. Could you imagine how overwhelming that would be? How much had changed over that time? You would have lines, wrinkles, your hair would be a different color. You would, you would just become undone at the sight of that, wouldn't you? The same happens long time away from God's word for these people. Them coming back, them holding up that mirror, they say, what has happened? What has happened in my life? And I don't know about you, but man, if you've run from God for some time, maybe you've had that moment. God has grabbed a hold of you and you've looked in his word and you've said, how far have I fallen, Lord? Maybe some of you haven't yet had that, but God's tugging at your heart. Today might be the day. That's overwhelming. That can cause you to weep. That can cause you to become undone. And so the second thing that happens is after understanding it, it leads and makes way for repentance to take place. And repentance is just another word for returning, turning back. And so for the people, here's what happened. They saw the picture of who God was and who he was calling them to be. And they realized that it did not line up with who they currently were and what they had been doing. And they began to weep. They began to mourn. They began to be filled with sadness because of it. But you know what? Every tear that was cried in that way, and I want you to know this, every tear that you shed before a holy God as you realize that you want your life to line up with his standards, that is the oil that continues to move you towards repentance. It just loosens the heart so it can turn towards God. I want you to know that those tears aren't wasted. Those tears are not something for you to be ashamed of. But as you do that, it's because God's moving in your heart and he is softening your heart and turning your heart towards himself. And so that's something that God does inside of a life. And as true repentance is taking place, it means that a heart is turning back to God. The people's hearts were seeing who God was, who he called them to be, and they're turning back to him now and weeping. But as they see that in so many people, at this point, what happens in your life is the enemy comes, and what he does is he wants to bring guilt and shame and condemnation, and he wants to just pile onto you as God is giving you his grace and love. He just wants to pile onto you guilt and shame about who you were, about your past. And many believers come to know Jesus as Lord, and you experience his forgiveness, but you know what? The enemy has convinced you that although God has forgiven you, you never need to forgive yourself. You will always live with the shame of your past. And although Jesus said it is finished, the enemy's convincing you that it's still there. 
and that is still in your life. And so there are so many Christians that walk around with shame, with condemnation, with guilt, with all these things. And I'll tell you what, as the people are weeping and weeping, I can see the enemy just sharpening his teeth, ready to pounce on them. But Nehemiah steps forward, and he says something incredible in this moment. And look what happens in verse 10. He says, then he said to them, go, go now, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy of the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, amen, and said, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And after that, after they said that, said the people went away, they ate, they drank, they sent portions to celebrate the great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Because I'll tell you what, if you read a portion of scripture and you read some selected passages, man, you feel like you're done. You like, okay, I'm, it's over. My life is over. I have fallen so far. But I'm so thankful that that's not the end of the story. That at the climax of the story, Jesus comes. And he saves us from our sins. And he redeems our life from the pit. And he sets us free. And he heals us. And he delivers us. And he gives us that new identity that we talked about. And therefore, we can experience the joy of the Lord today. That we don't have to be ashamed. But that as we come to Jesus, we experience the love and the grace of the Father. I think about the story of the prodigal son. What a powerful, powerful demonstration of the gospel and God's love for us. We talked about it a few months back. But this young man who had wasted away his life, had squandered his entire inheritance, is out in a pigsty trying to eat the food that the pigs have when his father has a palace. And as he's eating there, he, what happens? First, he understands. He comes to understanding. A light goes on. He came to his senses, it says. He says, this isn't right. I, I, I could at least go home. And he turned, repent, he turned and he started home. And before he could even get there, what happened? The father came and lavished his love upon him. His joy was there. The father's love was there. A great celebration was there. I want you to know something today that it doesn't matter what your past is. If God has allowed you to understand who he is, if you've turned your heart to him, there is great rejoicing in heaven on the fact that you're on a road back to him and that he loves you and that he wants to have that relationship with you. There's nothing more exciting than that. And so the Christian life is not one that is meant to be filled with sorrow, anxiety, depression, um, shame, guilt, condemnation. It is a life that's meant to be filled with joy, with joy that comes from knowing what he's done for us, in us, and through us. And I see that so many believers, we live without that sense of joy. For some, it's because we're carrying around that guilt. For some of us, we're trying to earn our way to go. Whatever it might be, there are many reasons but I know one thing for sure, that the joy of the Lord can be our strength. The joy of the Lord can be our motivation. I love that because for so many of us, we have so many different motivations. Why do you do what you do? What gives you the strength to do that? For some of you, it's anxiety, it's fear, it's whatever the case is. That's your strength. That's what motivates you. That's what gets you moving and doing the things that you do. For some of us, we may feel like we're serving God out of, uh, out of duty. We may feel like we're serving God out of fear because we don't want him to punish us or we're serving him. We're doing what we're doing because we don't want people to see us as unholy people. And so we're doing this time of reading the word and coming to church. And why do I do it? I do it because of the expectations of others. I do it. So all those things, whatever I've just said, 
become your strength. You're doing it for that. It's becoming your strength. That the duty of church attendance is your strength. It's what motivates you to do it. What does God's word say? May the joy of the Lord become your strength. May everything that you do, you do out of your relationship with God. May you do it out of the joy that God can bring into your life, out of the joy that God has for you. May that be something that strengthens you, not depletes you. May it be something that fills your life to overflowing. It doesn't take away from you. Because I'll tell you what, the worst thing that God would ever want in your life for, for you to have the wrong idea of who he is, that he's waiting up in heaven just to punish you the moment that you step out of line, what kind of relationship would that really be? What kind of relationship would that really feel like? I want you to know that you have a loving heavenly father who loved you so much he sent his son to die for you, who lavishes his love over you. As you turn your heart to him, as you desire to seek him, it fills him with joy and that joy can motivate and strengthen your life and lead you into deeper relationship with him. Remember why you do what you do. May it come out of the joy that comes from knowing God. Go back to that place and ask him to re give you new joy, to fill your life with joy, a joy that's unspeakable, a joy that you can't even comprehend. As Ezra explained all that had happened to the people in the word, their first response, conviction. It's a really a three-step process that happens. The first thing that happens is a conviction. A conviction comes into your heart about what happened when you see the word. But then there's that turning to God. And when that turning to God, there's a cleansing. He says, I will cleanse you of your sin. I will forgive you. I will allow you to walk in a new way. But right outside of that is celebration. Not condemnation, not shame, not guilt. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Celebrate your freedom. Celebrate your identity. Celebrate that you're a child of God. Don't let the enemy ever tell you otherwise. Try to convince you that your past outside of Christ, before Christ has excluded you, you now are a new creation in him. Cast that off. Allow the Lord just to remove that from you and fill your life with joy again so you can walk with him. As we move through that, you can see that God's word then isn't just isn't just a mirror that reminds us of, of how wrong we are, but when we get to the cross and we get to Jesus and we see it, it becomes a love letter to us. God's word becomes a love letter sent right to you that you begin to see not only did God so love the world, but he loved you enough to save you, to save you from your sins. And if you read God's word and see it and stand on it, you begin to realize the incredible love of God that transcends even our understanding. How could you love me that much, God? How could you really have died for me? How could you have done all of that? And if you get to know God's word, you realize this is not a book of judgment. It is a book that shares God's love and calls you to participate in it. So you see that the word becomes that in your life as you seek to rejoice in it. The psalmist, I love what he says in Psalm 119, verse 62. He says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds a great treasure. The word of God, do you, do you see it as a treasure in your life? Do you rejoice that you get to spend time in God's word? Do you realize today that you live in an age and in a time where you don't have to sit here and wait for me or someone else to come out here and open up this book and say, here it is, I'm reading it to you, and the next time that you get to interact with this uh, scripture, this word from God will be next week when we come together. But that you have, we have millions among us right now, we have access to millions of Bibles. You could go on and each one of you in your phone have access to thousands of different things you could find online, translations of scripture in every language known to man. You can find that at the edge of your fingertips now. There's no excuse for us not to be people of the word. It's here. 
But the goal is get it out of your phone into your heart. Get it out of the page. Get it into your life. Get it there to a place where it can make a real difference in you. But rejoice over that. Don't see it as a duty. Don't see it as some kind of thing that you have to check off a list. May it be counted as pure joy to know God through his word and to discover more about him. Whenever we continue through here, uh, it moves to the final part, and this is what happens as a heart is being surrendered to God completely. It starts where the people begin to understand. They repent. They rejoice in the word. It fills their life with joy, but it always ends in the same thing, obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey what I commanded you to do. That you can do everything else. You can take such joy in it, but guess what? Your joy will be cut short if you're not meeting it with obedience to God. The love of God and the love that you have from the joy that fills your life is not an excuse to go on sinning. It's an opportunity to enter into a, a brand new measure of obedience to God, to walk in a way that he would call you to walk. And obedience is what happens next in Nehemiah. As we look here in chapter 8, verses 13 through 16, it says the second day, and I'll invite the worship team to come now. On the second day, the heads of the father's households, of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Look at that picture. Look at what change, what's changed now. They're coming to God's word saying, we want to gain greater insight. We want to know God more. And as they seek to know God more, look at how God re reveals himself. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and they circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches from other leafy trees and make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves and for each on his roof and then in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at each the water gate, in the square of the gate of Ephraim. As they did this, they were doing what? They were being obedient to what God's word called them to. What was amazing is in that very time, this is, this is going to be incredible as you hear it, so please dial in right here. In that exact moment, without them even realizing it, they began to read in God's word. You know what God's word showed them? There is a, a festival. There is something that you are meant to be taking part in right now, today. Because what did it say in the first verses? It's the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month, that's when the feast is supposed to begin. It's called the Feast of Booths. It's a Feast of Tabernacles. If you would have followed uh, the, that in, in the past, you read about it in the Gospels especially. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time when the people were called to come back together because they didn't always have Jerusalem. They didn't always have the promised land. There was a time that they were in slavery. And when they came out of slavery, they were in a wilderness. And when they were in the wilderness, they didn't have anything else. But you know what they did have? They had the presence of God. And that's all that they needed. And so here's a picture of it. It's a picture of, the, of, of what happened as a tabernacle. It said God made his dwelling among them. And God was there and he was in the tabernacle. And you see all those tents, those are all the booths. Those are all the smaller tabernacles where the families could dwell together and sleep and stay. And so what God said is during this feast, this time, I want all the people, all my people to go back out into the hills, to go and cut down branches and to go and build booths again. Why? So you could be reminded. You could be reminded of what it was like when you didn't have anything else but my presence over you. 
And so the people would do that and they would worship the Lord and they would celebrate all that God had done in them. And this feast was supposed to be meant as, and it was called a feast of joy, a feast of rejoicing at the power and presence of God that could be among them and that he has given them everything that they need, that he has covered over them even when they didn't have a roof over their head. And so they did this. They took part in the Feast of Tabernacles. But guess what? Just as their hearts were turning away, they eventually gave away that. They, did, they didn't even participate in it anymore. In fact, by the time of Joshua, who's only the next leader after Moses, not thousands of years later, by the time of Joshua, they stopped doing this, even though the Lord had told them to. And so the people read in the, the Word of God. They see it. Their hearts have been turned. They're rejoicing. And they say, this is what God's word calls us to. This is how we're going to live our lives. Complete obedience. And they make a proclamation immediately. And they say, in fact, this is the day. This is the time we're supposed to be doing this. So they did that. Verses 17 and 18. The entire assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and they lived in them. And the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. I want you to know something today. That to the believer without joy, whenever you begin to discover God's will, it becomes a chore. It becomes like punishment. Oh, we have to go, we have to go live outside. We gotta go, we can't stay in, in our comforts. We gotta go out and make a house and live in it. But to the believer who has joy, the will of God, the will of God is nourishment. It's filling, it's exciting. It's something you long to be a part of. That's the difference of what happens here. And the people were greatly rejoicing. Why? Because after all their building, after all the work they had done, they had the ability to come and tabernacle with God and just get alone with that time of worship and looking to walk in obedience with what he had called them to. And it says they read from the book of the law daily from the first day to the last. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance obedience to God's word. An identity that is becoming a person of the word means that you move from understanding to repenting, to rejoicing, to obeying, to just obeying out of joy what God has called you to do and how he's called you to live your life. And as that happens, God changes everything. He changed their hearts. He changed their lives. From that day on, from that year on, going forward, they celebrated this now. They took part in it. In fact, by the time we get to John chapter 7, they're still taking part in the Feast of Tabernacles that came back and was instituted during this time. And they're still doing it. And it says that on the day that that was taking place, Jesus is walking. And in verse 37 of John 7, it says on the last day, that's the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up. This was the day of solemn assembly. Everyone's supposed to be quiet. Because on the last day of the feast, this wasn't a time of rejoicing anymore. They'd been rejoicing. This was now a time for them to look forward and realize this. Although they had had a great deliverer, they were still had not seen their great, great deliverer. The greatest deliverer that would come, the Messiah, the one that was coming to ultimately lead them into the freedom that God had promised through the prophets. And so on the last day, they took part and they remembered that although they were free, there was a greater freedom God wanted to bring through his Messiah, through the one that was coming. And so they would look forward and they would become solemn waiting on that. The promise of God and his presence to be among them in a special way. 
And on the greatest day of the feast, when everyone's supposed to be in that attitude, Jesus stands up and he shouts in a loud voice. And here's what he said. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will be flowing streams of living water. On the last day, here's what Jesus says. I'm here. I'm ready. If anyone's thirsty, if anyone's longing, if anyone's waiting, I'm here. And whoever believes in me, there will be an abundance of the Holy Spirit flowing out of his life. You don't have to be thirsty anymore. You don't have to be waiting anymore. You don't have to be living in these booths anymore. You don't have to be doing this. I'm here. And I'm here for you. To bring it even a step further, church, that feast begins tonight, going into tomorrow. The literal Feast of Tabernacles. The end of day, late night tonight, 27th, begins the 25th, goes through the 5th of October. I didn't plan it that way. I had no idea. I look at it, oh my goodness. What I'm talking about is happening right now <laughs> in God's timing alone. That is something that Nehemiah was saw and reminded his people of because we're we in the same exact time thousands of years later of what we're reading about in God's word today. And as I sensed that, and as I just felt that, here's what I feel God's telling us to do. So let's come and let's spend some time at the end of this service just tabernacling with God. Let's come, each one of you, each person, each family. And would you come and would you be reminded of God's presence here in this place at this hour? Today, would you be reminded that Jesus has come and he has come to give you a brand new identity. He has come to give you forgiveness for your sins. He has come to give you a life that can be filled with joy as you walk with him. He has come and called you to walk hand in hand in obedience to the word of God. Today, God, the God of the universe, he wants to meet with his people again. So would you stand with me today, church? And right where you are, right in the midst of where you are, would you just take it and as if you were building a little tent of meeting right among you right with your loved ones as if you were just building a booth right there then you were saying Lord I'm here to meet with you just like last week I said draw a circle around yourself and say Lord move in this place and start with me allow the Lord to meet with you in this moment right now for some of you if you feel led to why don't you leave your seats and come down at the altar and just make a place before you and God alone and let him speak to you. Let him minister to you. Let his word be made known to you. Today, this is gonna be a time as we close this service, there will be no formal dismissal. We want you worshiping God. We want you communing with him. We want you calling out to him. We want you asking him to meet you, to make his will known to you, to turn away from sin if that's where you are, to walk in obedience to him. May God fill our lives with joy as we do that. So I'm going to pray for you. Altar workers will be here, but I encourage you to come out and just tabernacle with the Lord. Make a place of meeting right where you're at with God and allow him to speak to your heart. Lord Jesus, we come now and we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your love and we pray that as we stand on your word that you would make yourself known to us. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've called us, Lord, by love to come now. So Jesus, we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As they sing, just come out of your seats. Please feel free to come here to worship God, to pray and seek him. And as you feel led to go, you're dismissed to head out. God bless you.